This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So the Tory sleaze route rumbles on. Owen Patterson may have quit the Commons, but that doesn't mean the issue has left the Commons floor. Today there will be an emergency debate. And we're starting to see the various ways in which this story will continue. So there's talk of House of Lords reform. Uh, there's questions about whether Boris Johnson could face an investigation on the refurbishment of the number 10 flat. And then there's general, I suppose, angst amongst the Tory party still about bruising days. And James, I suppose to start, there is a poll out today which puts Labour in front. Yes, it's- it's an Ipsos Mori poll for the standard. It has Labour on 36. Tories down quite a few points to 35. Now, most of the field work for this was carried out before this scandal. So I think we, we can't yet say we are seeing an effect. But I think it is always worth remembering that the, the Tory party's relationship with Boris Johnson is very transactional. It's basically, you are a winner, therefore we follow you. And I think you know any sense that that winningness is not as true anymore, has been diluted, will make... You know, party management, which is not one of his Downing Street's fortes, you know, even more difficult. As you say, there's a Lib Dem called debate today on sleaze in the chamber. Interestingly, Boris Johnson is um, perhaps unsurprisingly not going to be responding to the government. Instead, he's on a on a trip to the North England. Uh, and strikingly, Jacob Rees-Mogg. The leader of House of Commons isn't either. It's going to be Steve Barclay, the Cabinet Office Minister, who has drawn the short straw. Over the weekend, Fraser, we had George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, refer to this whole row as a storm in a teacup. What do you think of that? Uh, well, obviously, Eustace is talking nonsense. I've spent the weekend talking to quite a few MPs and some ministers who are deeply traumatised by what just happened. I know some MPs who think that the way that they voted last week is going to be held against them at the next election. They can imagine Labour running on an anti-sleaze ticket, for example, and saying, look at this, Joe Bloggs MP voted to try to get Owen Paterson off the hook. So we think that permanent damage has been done. And I guess they're still trying to come to terms with what happened. I spoke to one minister who was saying that you have to bear in mind the, the Tory party's kind of fragile mental state in a way. This is a party which, which feels bereaved, They've not just David Amos, but Rose Patterson, and they feel under attack. The you know we recently saw this strange segue from David Amos's murder to trying to crack down on people who post anonymous abuse on Twitter, and that is because the party feels that right now, I guess the David Amos attack could happen to any MP. So any if it happened to a journalist, I imagine we'd all be feeling pretty exposed. Like you, you can see that. But the minister's point was that this explains why a lot of people might not be thinking straight right now. There's a sense of being under attack, um, not just uh, digitally, but, but physically, and a sense of having to take more robust steps to defend the Tories, having to defend themselves. This added, ended up in the calamitous misjudgment, and a misjudgment which is raising quite serious questions about how Britain is governed and why number 10 didn't see this coming and how number 10 is wired. Like, now that Dominic Cummings isn't there, who tells Boris Johnson that this idea of his really isn't a good one? He is sort of famously um, quite a friendly person. He doesn't have very many friends in that perspective, people around him, very, very few. 
in the way that Linton Crosby, for example, might once have said to him, look, this is going to be a disaster, don't do it. He would have listened to Linton Crosby. Dominic Cummings would have done that, but we now know by Dominic Cummings' own admission that he was working against Boris Johnson uh, pretty much from the moment he, that they they'd won the election. Now, perhaps that's made the Prime Minister less inclined to trust people around him, but the lack of decent advice is leading to the debacle we saw last week. But not just that. It might be leading us into a system where a Tory government is implementing labour policies with the highest taxes for 71 years, simply because they couldn't get organised to think of a better way ahead. That's a more serious point, combined with the opinion pool falling behind labour. There's quite a lot for Tories to chew over right now. James, have you got closer to why ultimately Number 10 and no one in Number 10 stopped this from happening? Over the weekend, there's been a few briefings. I mean, Dan Rosenfield's receiving criticism. You've also got Declan Lyons, the new political secretary. We should um, perhaps could you talk um, listeners through the cast of characters here. I mean, Dan, Dan Rosenfeld, the chief of staff. Um, basically, would you say it's... Would you say he's a civil servant, James? I mean, no, he's, he's a, a former appointee. civil servant. He's a former Treasury civil servant. He's at a firm called Hacklett before he, I think it was recommended to Boris Johnson, uh, who was the, Lord Dighton, who was the Olympics minister, because he was one of the Treasury civil servants who worked on that. What I think is certainly true about Dan Rose, in fact, is that he doesn't have deep roots into the Tory party. As, as Katie says, you know, he was a civil servant. He was therefore kind of not party political. And so I don't think Dan Roosevelt is the kind of person who would have said, well, actually, I've been speaking for 2019 intake and I think they feel that this is all a bit iffy. What are we doing? And the 2017 lot aren't that keen on it either. I think in terms of a kind of nuance of the parliamentary party, that is slightly terra incognita for so, so, So he has, as his chief of staff then, effectively, somebody who would be more emotionally at home, making sure Whitehall functions effectively, yeah. not telling and what political risks lie around the corner, which was the big mistake th- this time. Who, who else did you mention, Katie? So Declan Lyons, who is the political secretary, he replaced Ben Gascoigne as political secretary. And ultimately, the political unit of a number 10 is having people say, oh, well, they, they should have seen this one coming. So the biggest failure is, is the prime minister in thinking that this was possible. Of right? Ultimately, he is the Prime Minister, and he shouldn't. He should have realised how this was going to blow up in his in his face. There is also, I think, a clear failure by the Chief Whip to tell people. You know, I think I think someone in Number Ten said to me, "Would anyone have done this if we thought we were going to get two hundred fifty-two votes?" No, because you know, that that shows you the size of Tory concern and discontent about the idea. So that was clearly a mistake. Jacob Rees-Mogg clearly made a mistake in not anticipating how this would play, not working out that if you tried to do this, Labour and the Lib Dems and the SNP would simply announce that it would boycott the new committee you were trying to set up to rewrite the standards rules. But you, know, you ultimately can't get away from the fact that you know Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister and this is his government. And so when a mistake of this size is made, you know, this, this isn't, you know, sometimes in politics you have issues that come along that you, you couldn't have known was going to be controversial. I don't think that a few weeks ago anyone else would have thought that sewage would become a big problematic issue for the government. This was a fight that the government walked into and it should have had its eyes open as to what the consequences of that were. Instead, it kind of blundered into this without having thought through how it was going to go. And I think, as you say, that is going to cause a lot of concern among Tory MPs about how this happened. This, this is the kind of idea that might have been floated in a morning meeting, but should never have left that meeting. People should have said, no, 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 we can't do this. And I think why it wasn't stopped is kind of, you know, a big part of the concern of Tory MPs at the moment. You know, why did no one in this Downing Street say, throw cold water over everyone and say, look, we cannot proceed with this. This is, this is going to end very badly. 
Another interesting aspect that, again, I've picked up in conversations over the last few days is that there are ministers who basically think government's getting too big. The amount of sheer amount of stuff is taking on right now is such that they keep their eye off the ball. Why did Grant Chaps not notice, for example, that there weren't enough HGV drivers being trained during lockdown? Because the Department of Transport has now got all these kind of environmental concerns right now. Net zero is a huge expansion in what government does. And we're looking here at a government which is bigger than any time in our recent history, and a government which has basically grown way beyond its usefulness. So another aspect of it is not just even if you had somebody very competent in number 10, it would be rather difficult to keep an eye on everything, given that there's almost nothing the government doesn't think it's its business now. So in a way, we're seeing just this mass expansion in the reach of government, a government now planning to part nationalise nursing care for the elderly, adding yet another branch into what it does. So perhaps the apparatus hasn't yet grown to count for the the massive 71-year high that taxes are about and spending is about to go to. And James, when it comes to how MPs are regulated going forward, what are we hearing that the Speaker of the Commons is thinking here, Lindsay Hoyle? So I think we'll hear from, after today's debate, I think you'll hear something from Lindsay Hoyle about some kind of review into this stuff. I think we talked on the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots about kind of the three different types of jobs that MPs do. I think that that third category, the kind of political advisory political intelligence role. I mean, that is likely to come to an end now. I think the mood has turned on the idea that MPs can be paid very large sums, often more than their salary, to just provide kind of vague kind of political intelligence or political advice or kind of, you know, the, the, all those kind of euphemistic terms to, to firms. I think people are definitely moving against that as an idea. I still think that we are, I think you could tell from, obviously you were there, Katie, so you you heard it firsthand, but from what Keir Starmer was saying on the Andrew Marr show, you know, I don't think Labour are in the position of, you know, banning second jobs entirely. I mean, Keir Starmer was pointing to the work done by MPs who are doctors and nurses during the pandemic as an example of that. And then I think the next question is, you know, what about those MPs who are like Geoffrey Cox, who are, for example, kind of using their skills as a lawyer rather than kind of political intelligence stuff, but earning very large amounts of money and it takes up a lot of their time. So I think this is going to be the next controversy. I think the kind of the kind of consultancy jobs I think are very vulnerable right now. I personally think it would be a pity to lose that second category, people using the skills that they had before they came into the Commons to kind of carry on doing some of their work. Because I think if it is properly regulated, that can actually provide a valuable perspective for Parliament. It's funny that Geoffrey Cox in the last hour has released his latest um, register of interests. £400,000 a year he's getting on top of his MP salary uh, for um, 40 hours per month on legal consultancy. 10 hours a week, that's, I don't know, about a day and a bit. That's a fair amount of work, you know. We're not talking somebody's working five days a week as an MP. We're talking somebody's working... Um, less than four days a week as an MP. And James, you know, I, I take your points here that he, he's earning his money honestly, but, you know, 40 hours a week. I wonder how much of time commitment is consistent with being genuinely claiming that you're a full-time politician. Oh, it's an interesting point, then, because if you're... I mean, he is a constituency MP, right? And I'm not trying to say the two things are the same, but cabinet ministers, for example, spend way more than 10 and a half hours a week on their departmental responsibilities. But we kind of accept that they can still be constituency MPs. I think if you go down this route of uh, essentially banning all these outside interests, we're going to end up with far more people of inherited wealth in the House of Commons who don't need, you know, don't need to earn any other money. 
And I think you will lose some knowledge and some expertise. I mean, the, the better criticism of Geoffrey Cox, to my mind, is how, how rarely he speaks in Parliament. You know, I think that, you know, this is someone who, in lots of these debates, for example, about Article 16 in the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, he was the government's um, lawyer at the time. You know, mm-hmm. There is frequently suggestions made by the government. They didn't really quite realise what they were signing up to, or the issue is that the, 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 the agreement has been implemented in a very different way than they expected. I mean, surely, I think, I think Geoffrey Cox would be on stronger ground if he was more frequently in the Commons speaking about these issues, saying how correct or otherwise mm. those, those claims are. I mean, you're right, are. his voting record, I, I, looked, I looked this up last week, his voting record is actually quite good. But what we, we saw during the, um, the Theresa May days is just how incredibly eloquent Geoffrey Cox is. I think we gave him a speech of the year in our parliamentary awards. After that date, we hear barely a squeak from him. And that's to, you know, I, I do feel that with somebody of his abilities... The public is right now being shortchanged in how little we're hearing from Geoffrey Cox. And I would, you know, not, not exactly outbid him in the public purse to spend more of those 40 hours making speeches in Parliament, but I'd like him to spend at least three or four hours a month making speeches in Parliament. And finally, Fraser, back in the conversation too, is the idea of Lords reform. Stories over the weekend about the link between Tory donors and peerages. Do you think that's something that is actually going to happen? It's often talked about. No, I I don't. I am um, old enough to remember the last attempt at Lords reform under the Blair government and Jack Straw. And I got very excited about it at the time because you got to think to yourself, look at this this ancient house with their earpieces and their funny titles and surely we're going to reform this. And then you come to the reason why it's not going to be reformed. It can only be reformed by a majority opinion. And there are simply too many people with too many different competing views for anything to be agreed. So there will never be... You can't reform... No government can reform parliament. You need a consensus. There are so many other ways to do a second chamber. While I think most people would agree that there's a better way of doing it than what we've got, nobody can agree what that better way is. So until that changes, then we can expect... Lots of talk about Lord's reform, but I don't think there's going to be much action. And also, the House of Commons is always very dubious of any kind of Lord's reform that would threaten the primacy of the Commons. You know, for example, you know, occasionally people say, oh, why don't we have the, the Lords elected by proportional representation while the Commons sticks with first past the post? Lots of MPs don't like that because they think that in that situation you could have some members of the House of Lords claiming that you know they, they have a greater de- democratic legitimacy than the House of Commons does. At the moment, the House of Lords backs down whenever it is in a conflict with the elected House on, or in, you know, 99% of the time or more than that because it knows the lack of its power. And I think the truth is that the Commons likes the Lords in this, in this very supine position. What about a unicameral parliament, James, like the Scottish Parliament? Um, I think, no, no lords at all, just one chamber. I think if you look at the, uh, the some of the troubles the Scottish Parliament has had, I think it actually makes a case for a revising chamber. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, as well as listening to us, why not read our analysis daily through the evening blend? Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. And that brings you up in the day's news of Insight to Boot.